Well, good morning. To say the least, this has been quite a week. And things were actually set in motion a week ago today when we had our fresh encounter on Sunday evening. Uh, God in his providence gave us Psalm 61 as our text that night. And I'd like to read it to you because it's a psalm where David is uh, being chased. He's running for his life. His son Absalom is after him. And in Psalm 61, he says, Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to thee when my heart is faint. That word faint literally means overwhelmed. He says, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in thy tent forever, and let me take refuge in the shelter of thy wings. That psalm has meant everything to me this week. When you go from being an assistant pastor to the only enchilada in town, it was quite, <laughs> quite overwhelming, to say the least. But God's grace has been absolutely amazing. When I came into the office Tuesday, I lie not to you, I was as calm and as peaceful as can be, and it was the grace of God based on this text. And the irony in all this is that in our prayer group that night was Ron and Carla. And Carla was sharing how she at this time in life is going through difficult times. She has to take care of an elderly mother, She's preparing to send her daughter back off to college. She wishes she could spend more time with her grandchildren. And she's been trying to start a business to help supplement income in her home. And she said, I've just felt the pressure of it all. Not to mention in recent weeks, Ron has been carrying a tremendous load here in, in preparing sermons in the absence of Cliff. And then a little over 24 hours later, this happens. So you see the providence of God and his amazing grace in giving us a text like this? It's just amazing that we can go to our God. There are just times, beloved, when it's only us and God. And we go to him and he is a refuge to us. We can run to him in the shelter of his wings. He is a tower of strength, a source of protection against our enemies. And certainly, I believe with all my heart, I truly believe this, we are making inroads in this community as a witness, and I, I believe wholeheartedly that we are under attack with all that's been going on. But I can unequivocally tell you that God is our refuge. He is our tower, and we can flee to him, and he will meet our needs according to his grace, and he certainly has this week. Why don't you turn in our text today? We're going to be returning to Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 2. And I get to say what I wanted to say for a long time. You can turn into in the Pew Bible to page 1414 <laughs> if you don't have a Bible with you. You know, up until this point in our study of Timothy, Paul, as you know, has been in prison for the second time and he's keenly aware that he's not coming out, that his days on this earth are short. And this text... Uh, 2 Timothy, this letter to Timothy is the passing of the mantle onto him. He's passing on the ministry of the preaching of the gospel to this young boy, Timothy, who's a son to him, 
Paul led this young man to Christ and has a keen affection for this young man. And Paul, though, as you read in the text of 2 Timothy, is fearful for this young man. He's in danger of weakening spiritually under the pressure and weight of ministry and in light of the persecution under Nero's reign, is afraid. And there's indications that he's shrinking inwardly and he's not carrying out his responsibilities as a young pastor in Ephesus. And so you see in various segments of this text, in 2 Timothy, in verse uh, 6 of chapter 1, he tells Timothy to stir up the gift that is in you. And then he says in, in verse 7, he says, replace fear with power, love, and a sound mind. And then he says in verse 8, don't be ashamed of my bonds and my love for Jesus Christ, but be willing to suffer for the Lord. And then in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says to Timothy to hold on to sound doctrine. One of the hallmarks of the early church, and nothing's changed today, is as soon as the church was established, false teaching started to creep in. And it's been a constant battle, and it will be until Christ returns. In chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, he tells him to avoid doctrinal error. And then in uh, chapters 3, verse 15 through 4, verse verse 5, he says to preach God's word incessantly. And so Paul admonishes this young man in his fears and his weakness and his actually pulling back from his responsibilities as a minister of the gospel. And so last week when, when Ron so eloquently preached on verses 1 and 2, we saw the transition that Paul brings to chapter 2. At the end of chapter 1, he speaks about the faithful surface of a one named Onesiphorus. And where he writes in verse 16 through 18, he said, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what service he rendered to me at Ephesus. And in light of this example of Onesiphorus, he says there in verse 1 of chapter 2 to Timothy, he says, You therefore be strong. He's exhorting this young preacher, be strong. In the grace that is in Christ Jesus, he's speaking about the supernatural enablement that comes with knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. I'm standing here this morning, not in my own power, but I am standing in the grace, the enablement of the Lord Jesus Christ. No minister of the gospel, a true minister of the gospel, can stand before a pulpit upon, before people without the grace of God. It's impossible. For this word is eternal. And it's spiritually discerned. And apart from the Spirit of God, you can't understand it. And apart from the Spirit of God, I can't proclaim it. It's nothing but a clanging symbol, empty words, unless the Spirit of God is involved. And so Paul is admonishing this young preacher who's scared and struggling with his ministry as a young man. Be strong. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the grace, his enablement. Paul knew well. No, knew all too well the grace of God. From 1 Corinthians, he asked God three times to take away the thorn in his flesh. And he learned that God's grace was sufficient to meet every need. In fact, he said, when I am made weak, then I am made strong. Beloved, one of the best places you could ever be in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be weak. It's at that point that he can demonstrate his power in and through you. 
It's not about your power and might. It's about his. And so we find many admonitions about this being strong in the scriptures. In Deuteronomy 11.8, God says to Moses, You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today, so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land to which you are about to cross and possess. In Deuteronomy 31.7, Moses says to Joshua, Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all of Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. In Joshua 5, 1, verses 5 through 7, God says to Joshua, before he led his children into the promised land, he says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you and not fail you or forsake you. Be strong. And courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not return from it. Do not return from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. And so you can see from some of these texts, and there's many, many more, that the Christian life isn't for sissies. It takes courage, and it takes fortitude, and that doesn't come from within. That comes from God. That's part of his enablement and his grace. He exhorts Timothy then, in 2 Timothy verse 2 then, to entrust to faithful men the message of the gospel. And as Ron pointed out last week, it's so important to to mention here that he is not passing down the office of apostleship. He is passing down the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ to this young man. And so the gospel message is passed from Paul to Timothy. And Paul impresses upon Timothy to pass it on to faithful men. Men that have had a reputation within the church. Men who are able, who are recognized to have the gift of teaching. And then these men, these faithful men in turn, are to pass it on to the next generation. And because of their obedience, we're sitting here today because the gospel has been passed down from generation to generation. And the thing is, we should never forget, never forget that the handing down of our faith goes beyond the doors of our church. We don't train the next generation just to fill their heads with knowledge. We're not walking around here with heads swelled with Bible facts and trivia. The purpose for handing down sound doctrine is that we might live godly lives in a perverse world. We entrust sound doctrine to, to refute false teaching that can come from within the church and from outside. We entrust sound doctrine to build up the body of Christ and the grace and knowledge of him. And we entrust sound doctrine that we might go outside these doors and present Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. It's not about head knowledge. It's about life transformation. And so Timothy is exhorted by Paul to courageously invest himself in others. That the work of the ministry of the gospel can continue and move forward. And as we move into this morning's text then, the business of entrusting the gospel of Jesus Christ to reliable men is portrayed by Paul in metaphorical form. He gives us the example in verses 3 through 7 of chapter 2 as a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And Paul would exhort this young preacher, Timothy, to pattern his life after the examples of these three metaphors that we're going to take a look at today. And if he's going to be successful in the ministry of Jesus Christ, 
Uh, he's going to have to pattern himself in such a way that he will be effective in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And thus the title of my message then this morning is Patterns for a Godly Man. As we look in the text now in verse 3 of chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be first to receive and share in the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And so the work of the ministry is a battle. It's warfare. Paul starts off here in verse 3 with using the example of a soldier. Immediately what comes to your mind is warfare, battle, conflict. The work of the ministry of the gospel is always a battle, and it always will be a battle. The good soldier of Christ must contend for the faith. Jude writes, Beloved, he says, While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. And I love what he says here, which was once all handed down to the saints. He correlates very closely here to what Paul has been trying to teach Timothy about handing down the faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 4, Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Beloved, the Christian life always has and always will be a battle. When you wake up every day, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that will never cease until we're home to be with the Lord. But I can't help but go back to verse 1 of this text. Be strong in the grace of God that will enable you. That's where our strength comes from. That's where the battle is won. The battle is never won in our own strength. It's won in the grace of God. And so we see in this text then a soldier. A soldier doesn't go into battle without preparation. But he enters after he has trained and trained rigorously. He enters the rigors with heavy physical training, running miles and miles, exercising, strength training, tactical training, sleepless nights. He's broken down mentally that he's no longer living for himself, for now he belongs to something greater than himself. He's dedicated to his comrades, his superior officers, and his country. The, the soldier is set apart for service. Spurgeon said this concerning the good soldier. He says, Paul does not exhort Timothy to be a common or ordinary soldier, but to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ for all soldiers and all true soldiers may not be good soldiers. There are men who are but just soldiers and nothing more. They only need sufficient temptation and they readily become cowardly and idle. They become worthless but he is a good soldier who is bravest of the brave, courageous at all times, who is zealous and does his duty with heart and earnestness. 
With this in mind, as a good soldier, Paul then exhorts Timothy, he says, suffer hardship with me. The word hardship is not a reference to the general rigors that a soldier goes through in his everyday life, but the word actually implies suffering. This was not a suggestion from Paul to Timothy, but it carries with it the sense of requirement. This is a requirement for the service and the ministry. You will suffer, Timothy. And this resumes the major theme that Paul instituted in chapter 1 in verse 8. Therefore, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Down here in verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, for which I suffer hardship, even to the imprisonment as a criminal. In chapter 4, verse 5, he says, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. In chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul is making a differentiation there between Timothy being ashamed of the testimony of Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ and the chains that Paul bore. And then he implores him to join in suffering. But in the text here in verse 3 of chapter 2, Timothy is to suffer hardship as a requirement of faithful service to Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of persecution happens or when it's going to happen, but it will happen. It's an obligation that he's going to have to endure as a minister of the gospel. Now, most of you are familiar with these words found in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. But Jesus says, as he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Again, Jesus in John 15, 20, he says this, Remember the word that I said to you, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. It's not easy being a Christian. It's not easy being a minister of the gospel. It's warfare. It's battle. It takes preparation. You have to be separated. But God will enable you. And you must be strong. And you must be courageous. And it applies to you, my beloved, as well. As Ron said last week, the standard is higher for a pastor. There's no doubt about that in his calling. But the reason his standard is high is that he might be an example to his people to follow. So all of this is not just for the pastors itself. It's for everyone who names the name of Christ. It's going to be a battle. To follow Jesus Christ will cost. You must pick up your cross and follow Christ. Your life is not your own as the soldier is not his own. He's dedicated to the service. A believer in Jesus Christ is dedicated to his Lord. And he must be separated from the affairs of the world that he might serve him. And thus we move into this next part then in verse 4. When Paul continues the pattern of a good soldier, he says in verse 4, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. A soldier has to give up many things, and some of them are bad, and some of them are good. The bad things are his pride, his independence, and his self-will. The good things is oftentimes he has to give up his family, his job, his home. But nevertheless, if a soldier is not willing to give up things, he's not a soldier at all. 
at all. A soldier has to give up if he's going to serve. And if he gives up anything that gets in the way of being a good soldier or serving his commanding officer, a faithful soldier does not have the right to do anything that will entangle him and make him less effective as a soldier. It's well known that the legionary soldiers in the Roman the Romans, uh, Roman days were not permitted to engage in farming, merchandise, mechanical work, employments of any kind that they might be dedicated to their service as a soldier. And if Timothy was to engage in the work of the ministry, he must perform his task wholeheartedly. He can't be entangled in the snares of life. That word entangles carries with it the idea of being interwoven or meshed with. In other words, the minister of the gospel must be so entangled in the things that he cannot be entangled in the things of life that it would be a hindrance to his single-mindedness in Christ and his dedication to gladly follow his commands, his commanding officer, namely Jesus Christ himself. This past spring was a a classic example in my own life. Uh, My son and I, Jeremy, have been coaching baseball at Leah Valley Christian High School for a couple years, and I did it again with him this year. And it was uh, arduous, to say the least, now that I'm in the ministry. It caused great distraction to my duties here. As I was interwoven, I was meshed in something else. It was very hard. And to top it off, the first week into the season, I got the flu. And for two and a half months, it took me to actually get back to full strength. And so it was something that in and of itself was good. There was nothing wrong with it. And we... we involved ourselves and, and poured ourselves into 11 young men, but it still was something that distracted me. It caused me to be interwoven with something that took me away from my duties here. And so the minister of the gospel can't be entangled in things that will take him away from his ministry. And beloved, there's no difference in your life as well. Yes, you have the affairs of everyday life, and yes, you have to support your family and your things in your community. But none of those things has to come to the point where it entangles you and keeps you from your walk with Christ. Paul uses an analogy in 1 Corinthians. He's asked the question about marriage by the Corinthians. And he gives the example of marriage being a good thing, but that it's far better to serve Christ if you're not married because of the entanglements of marriage. You're concerned about providing for your family and taking care of your wife and your family. And so, if anything today, if you get nothing out of this message, then blame it on my wife because I'm entangled in marriage. (laughs) But a believer has to be separated unto God. He can't be entangled. Then notice he says, uh, the reason why he must not be entangled himself is that he might please the one who enlisted him. I love that. Jesus Christ is the commander of all heaven's armies. In Joshua 5.14, Jesus is the commander of the army of the Lord, and he is our commanding officer, is he not? We owe him total obedience as our commander and our chief. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. In 1 John 3.22, John writes, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Timothy is Christ's soldier because Christ enlisted him. 
and therefore he ought to serve him with untangled service. The implication from verse 3 then is that such service involves suffering and that Timothy should be willing to please his commander by bearing such suffering. Paul moves into verse 5. He speaks now about an athlete. And he writes also, If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rule. The adverb there used also indicates that the image of the athlete is making much the same point as Paul used with the soldier. An athlete, if he's a good one, is much like the soldier in that he must be dedicated, he needs to be devoted, he trains rigorously, and he's mentally disciplined. His life is not his own, but it's separated or it's set apart that he might win the prize. He's not entangled in the affairs that do not enhance his chances to win. And Paul often drew upon the world of athletics for illustrations in the Christian life. He mentions track and field in 1 Corinthians 9.12. He uses the metaphor of boxing in 1 Corinthians 9.26. In Ephesians, he uses the metaphor of a wrestler in chapter 6, verse 12. And Paul is saying, if you expect to win, Timothy, you have to play by the rules. Dr. Harry Ironsides, he was a well-known preacher at Moody Church in the 1930s and 40s. But before that, early in his ministry, he was a missionary to the Laguna Indians in southwestern United States. And he said one time, one night, he went into the store on the reservation. And he said he found his interpreter there reading the newspaper. And the store was filled with Indians. And he was translating what he was reading to them from the newspaper. The newspaper contained the account of the Olympic Games of 1912, which had been celebrated in Stockholm, Sweden. And the man who won those medals, the most medals in that uh, Olympiad, was Jim Thorpe. These Indians were thrilled to hear that one of their own had won so many medals, one from their own uh, tribe, of uh, tribe of people. And he told them that at the time the gold medals and other medals were being handed out, the king of Sweden himself decorated Jim Thorpe and taking him by the hand, all the people said, he said to the people, you are to be congratulated. You are the greatest amateur athlete in the world today. The Indians were so proud. They were enthusiastic as they heard this one, Jim Thorpe, one of their own, being so decorated. Harry said he went into the store several weeks later and the store was filled with the Indians and there his interpreter was reading the newspaper to them. But the result wasn't the same. There was no bright faces and he wondered why, what was going on. Harry said, I learned that some white men in the country had been so indignant that an Indian had carried off all these medals and so many prizes that they were searching into his past to see if they could find anything that they might hold against him. And they found out that one summer while he was playing baseball in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, that he had played on the team and got paid $5 a week. The information was forwarded to the Olympic Committee who referred it to the King of Sweden. And after the King contemplated uh, what to do, uh, he uh, sent a letter to, to Dim Thorpe and Jim was required to return all his medals. Harry says that poor Jimmy sent a letter back to the king saying, I'm only a poor, ignorant Indian. 
And I did not know the fact that I had accepted $5 a week one summer playing baseball had made me a professional. I did not mean to deceive, he said, but he sent back all his medals. These Indians that listened to this story were stirred, and they couldn't understand the white man's ways. But the bottom line is, no athlete is entitled to the reward if he doesn't play by the rules, and ignorance plays no part in that. What Paul might be referring to here in this text is the Isthmian Games, which is, correlates to our Olympics today. These superb athletes competed at a high level of competition. In the actual competition of the Isthmian Games, there were three prerequisites that the athlete had to adhere to. Number one, he had to prepare for ten months and stand before the statue of Zeus and swear that he had prepared for ten months. If he had not, then he gave Zeus liberty to take his life. Secondly, uh, thirdly rather, he had to stay within the rules of the event. And if he was found not to be a true-born Greek, if he was found that he had not prepared for 10 months, if it was found that in any way he did not adhere to the rules of the event, he was disgraced and he was instantly disqualified. So we ask ourselves, then, what's the implication here to Timothy? Well, one can certainly refer to the general observation that if we sin or deviate from the truth, that, of course, we don't win the prize. And the prize is, is a reference to our rewards as believers in Jesus Christ. But in the context of this letter to Timothy, remember we said Paul is concerned about this young man and the possibility of him weakening in his ministry and pulling away under the pressure of persecution and the weight of ministry. You remember his admonitions? He said, stir up the gift that is in you, replace fear with power, love, and a sound mind, hold on to sound doctrine, accept persecution, avoid doctrinal error, preach God's word incessantly. You see, if Timothy was not willing to accept the hardships that we find in verse 3, the suffering and the persecution that accompany the work of the ministry, he would not win the prize. To attempt to avoid suffering or situations that would lead to suffering would amount to breaking the rules. To accept the stresses and the strain on the body and the mind connected with ministry require the utmost self-control and determined commitment to work. The metaphor of an athlete therefore repeats from a different perspective the resolute dedication and self-discipline of a soldier, a good soldier, in pleasing his commander and being effective in carrying out the mission. The strong believer and the minister of the gospel then is a competitor who strives to win. That's the picture here of an athlete striving to win, working hard, being diligent. It's self-discipline. It's the picture of self-denial and self-sacrifice and tremendous effort. If Timothy was to be effective in ministry and win the prize, he must compete according to the rules. He can't shrink from persecution and the hardships of ministry. He must press on. He must strive to win. What was the prize that Timothy was competing for? Well, James writes this. He says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has, prom has promised to those who love him. John the Revelator, in Revelation 2.12, he writes this. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He says, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. But he says this, he says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
The Isthmian game winners received prizes that were man-made, they were temporary, and they eventually faded away. Timothy, if he would accept Paul's challenge, would receive a crown of eternal significance, and it would never fade away. The Apostle Peter, I love what he says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here he says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. We don't strive for something that's temporary. The Isthmian games are great. The athletes are well-trained. They're dedicated. But what they strive for is going to fade away. What we strive for, beloved, as believers in Christ, will never fade away. And one day when we receive that crown of life and other crowns, there's several crowns mentioned in Scripture, we will have the privilege of laying those crowns at the feet of our Savior because it emanated from him to begin with. If it was not for his grace, we wouldn't do the things that we do for him. So Paul says to him, he says, Timothy, you're a soldier. Recognize you're always in a war and don't be surprised if you suffer for it. Expect it. And secondly, he says, you're an athlete, Timothy, and it's going to take self-denial. It's going to take hard work and great effort for a long time. But if you do, you'll win. You'll win the reward. And then finally, Paul gives him a third metaphor here in chapter 2, verse 6. He talks about the farmer, and actually it means the tiller of the ground. He says in verse 6, he says, The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive and share in the crops. The verb form here, the verb tense, means to work to the point of exhaustion. To wear yourself out, to sweat. It means to strain. He says, Timothy, you're a farmer. What's the point? The soldier has the thrill of victory. The athlete has his moment of crowning. What does the farmer metaphor give you? It pictures a man who works to the point of exhaustion in perpetual humdrum duty. Not like a soldier who wears his badges or his courage, who knows the glory of victory, and not like the athlete who carries the crown on his head and ascends to a place where he is honored, where he receives the accolades of men. The farmer, he plows, he sows, sows, he tends to his land, he reaps, he's up early, he goes to bed late. He fights the frost, he fights the heat, he fights too much water, too little water, bugs, weeds, it's arduous, hard work. Patiently, 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 he waits throughout the summer. He works to see the crop come. And most of the time, he does it by himself. There's no great excitement. There's no thrill. It's perpetual humdrum, routine duty. That's the other part of ministry, Timothy Paul's saying. Sometimes the crops come in the way you hope, and sometimes it doesn't. And after it's all said and done, the farmer is dependent upon the grace of God for the rain and the sun to make it all happen. And so Paul is exhorting him to work hard, to exhaust himself. He says to him, nobody will clap when he does, when you complete the work as a farmer. And nobody's going to come to your help either. So why does the farmer do it? 
latter part of verse 6 says, to be the first to receive the crops. In other words, what Paul is saying, look, the guy who worked the hardest gets in line first to get the fruit. And that's why he does it. Blessing awaits the one who works the hardest. You want God's blessing on your ministry? And I'm not talking about future blessing. I'm talking about here and now and future. You want God's blessing? Work hard. Work hard. Be diligent. Exhaust yourself. I would venture to say that very few people today really know what it is to literally exhaust themselves for the work of the kingdom of God. Timothy, he says, do you want to have life and ministry blessed of God? Now will be the eternal reward. Then work hard. Work till you're exhausted. Pour your life into people. Pour your life into the ministry. And so the strong Christian then sees himself as a farmer, willing to work hard, exhausting himself to see results. Patiently until success comes, filled with anticipation and joy that the fruit of his labor, he'll be rewarded both now and forever in eternity. And I tell you, the ministry is so exciting because you can share in that fruit. And then you think of the same day when the Lord will reward us and we cast those same rewards at his feet in adoration. And you look at it and you say, what a privilege. Ministry is hard. It can be very mundane. It can be very discouraging at times as you pour yourself into people only to see them walk away from the Lord. People can come to you for counseling and you can spend many, many hours and they never change. But there is great fruit as well and there is great reward and there is great privilege. It's hard. It's exhausting. People have asked me many times since I've become a pastor here since last September, are you enjoying what you're doing? And I say, absolutely, I enjoy it. But I also tell them it's weighty. You carry a lot of burdens of people. But that's the ministry, and that's what God has called the minister of the gospel to do. And that's what he's called you to do too. He's called you to invest yourself in the lives of people. And so we get to verse 7. And Paul says this to Timothy. He says, Timothy, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Do you understand what I'm saying, Timothy? Think it over. Think it over, Timothy. Ponder this. Look at your own life and ask yourself, am I a strong Christian? Do I devote myself to safeguarding and proclaiming the truth like a true teacher? Am I consumed with that? Think about it, Timothy. Think about it. Do I deny myself and serve my commander and give my life as a true soldier at any cost? Am I always on the battlefront? Think about it, Timothy. Think about it. And in terms of the athlete, ask yourself this. Do I discipline myself to succeed in winning the spiritual race? Do I understand self-denial? Do I understand self-sacrifice? Do I understand the effort? Do I understand that I must obey the word of God and keep the rules? Am I willing to suffer through it all? Am I an athlete who runs to win? Timothy, think about it. Think about it. Am I a hard-working servant of Christ? Do I sweat in producing a spiritual crop like a true farmer? Timothy, ask yourself. That's what he means when he says to consider what I say. He says, Timothy, consider how you match up 
to these patterns that I have set before you. Are these the patterns of your life, Timothy? And that begs the question then to all of us, are these the patterns of our lives as well? He says, Timothy, you think about it, and the Lord will give you the answer. He says, contemplate it, and he will show you where you are. And Paul, in essence, is saying to Timothy, listen, I'm through at this point, Timothy. It's up to you. I've given you the pattern. You must make the decision if you are going to enter the battle. If you have the spiritual integrity to do an inventory on your life, Timothy, the Lord will show you where you are. He will give you understanding, and he will open your mind. The psalmist in 119.73 said this. He says, Lord, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. And so Paul is saying, in essence, Timothy, take a good look at yourself, and the Lord will show you where you truly are. That's our admonition here this morning, beloved. God is asking all of us to take inventory, to take stock of our lives. There's an awful lot of people sitting in the bleachers today in the body of Christ. They're afraid. They're afraid to get in the battle. They're entangled. They're interwoven into the world and the entanglements that the world brings. And sometimes they're good things. There's nothing wrong with some of these things. But needless to say, it's taking them away from trustworthy service to their Savior. And so Paul gives us this example of a good soldier an athlete, and a farmer. He says, take stock, Timothy. He says to all of us, take stock. I trust you'll take these words today and take stock of your life. Examine your heart. We could be entering into difficult days in this country. And if you think the battle is hard now, just wait. But I go back to verse 1 in the text. He says, Timothy, be strong in the Lord and in his grace. That's where it lies, beloved, in his grace. If we don't rely on it, we'll lose. But if we rely on his grace, we'll be like the athlete who has striven hard and worked hard and will receive the prize if we obey the rules. Let's not shrink away from hardship. Let's not shrink away from persecution. But let's make our commander-in-chief happy and let's please him as a people. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, This text is obviously replete with metaphors of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And there's many things, Lord God, that we are to learn from this and apply to our lives. But the bottom line, Father God, apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. But it's up to the believer himself if he's going to get in the game. It's up to the believer himself if he's going to set himself apart to serve his master. It's up to the believer himself if he's going to work diligently and hard and exhaust himself for the sake of the kingdom. And so I pray that you will help us, Lord God, to do that, that you will enable us by your grace, that we not only grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ here, but that we are equipped and we go forth and we pass down the truth to other generations, both inside this building and outside the four walls of this building. And Father God, we pray that in all of this, that Jesus Christ may be honored and glorified and lifted up. And for all this, we'll say thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.